So welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I'm here with Matt Hope, the editor of DSmog UK, which is an environmental investigation website and uh, a site producing some of the best investigative journalism uh, surrounding Brexit and uh, disaster capitalism in probably in the UK. Thanks, really appreciate it. Good to be here. No problem. Right, before we start, I have to plug two things really fast. First of all, my book is now available to order. Um, this is a slightly ruined copy because I have not treated it well, but you should um, totally go and buy it and treat it really beautifully and, and frame it and maybe even read it. And uh, also, if you follow the link in the description below, you can get 35 or 35% off of ExpressVPN for 12 months. So Matt, one of the big, one of the big um, groups of, of think tanks or charities that, that I kind of focused on in my book and uh, you have focused on in some of your reporting is Tufton Street. Like, do you want to explain to people like what the Tufton Street group is and, and sort of how it came about? Sure. So Tufton Street um, is basically now a shorthand for a kind of group of broadly anti-regulation um, think tanks and campaign groups. The reason that we call it Tufton Street is because most of them were certainly initially based out of 55 Tufton Street, a specific office space. Um, they now also have some offices next door in 57 Tufton Street. And they're all kind of clustered around this, this street um, in, in Westminster, just around the corner from the House of Parliament. So some pretty big names you might know, for example, Boat Leave were initially based there. Um, the UK's main climate science denial campaign group, the Global Warming Policy Foundation is based there, Taxpayers Alliance are based there. So these are all kind of, you know, think tanks which are particularly influential to a particular section of the Tory body. And they basically have to be all based in this one space, essentially. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite disturbing. I'm just pulling up the list here of people who are there. So we've got Brexit Central, um, Business for Britain were there until 2015. Uh, leave Means Leave were there. Um, the Global Warming Policy Foundation, Global Vision, European Foundation, Civitas. Uh, the New Culture Forum and the Taxpayers Alliance, and next door there's the Centre for Policy Studies and the Initiative for Free Trade. It's it's um it's quite notable to have like such a an ideologically similar set of think tanks all grouped together in the in in the same in the like in the same building almost. I mean, like what is the do you want to like explain what the agenda is that they're they're kind of pushing forward before we we go on to like how they influence the government. So it is kind of odd to think of having all these organizations in one space, but that's only if you consider them to be really separate entities. So actually, the way I like to think of them um, more accurately, I would argue, is that they're actually basically the same entity, but just with lots of different wings, and lots of different, essentially, front groups. Um, they share a lot of the same board members. They share a lot of the same advisors. Sometimes they share staff. There's certainly a revolving door between the stuff, and they certainly share an ideological agenda. So once you actually piece it all together and map it, like we have, and you know, uh, allow me to put my own plug in there. You know, we did this big map a couple of years ago about the crossover between uh, Brexit, pro-Brexit groups, and the kind of climate science deniers, and how they all essentially uh, share people, share personnel, and share share funders and share links. Once you actually kind of see all those connections, you, you start to realise that these aren't really in any real sense separate entities um, and they're kind of just front groups for different bits so you just mentioned a few of them there for example the initiative for free trade well that's great because then whenever anything is being spoken about by future post-project trade deals or anything through free trade you roll out dan hannan's outfit the ift you know when you're talking about climate change great roll out the global warming policy foundation that's our wing that deals with that um, and it's basically a way that they can get themselves in front of as much media as possible in front of as many tv cameras as possible and come across um basically 
pitch themselves as experts on these very specific things, but actually they're just really kind of one big mass entity um, pushing a particular ideological agenda. And just to say quickly then a few couple of words on what that ideological agenda broadly speaking is, and there are some nuances, but it's broadly anti-regulation. It's broadly pro-deregulation. So they believe that the free market can basically solve basically all problems um, and they don't like the interfering hand of government. Um, and so basically any policy issue that you encounter that they talk about, the suggestion or solution that they're pushing will generally be stripping back government involvement. Mm. Now, the, these groups were almost unanimous, uh, unanimously in support of Brexit. And then after the vote happened, they were um, involved in, in pushing out like a, a number of sort of pro hard Brexit uh, publications, pro sort of the, the World Trade Organization Brexit, the WTO Brexit that, that would have um, quite potentially been catastrophic. Um, not, I mean, we're, we're still sort of seeing what the what the result of, of what we're do, what we've uh, done to date are. Um, and it's kind of being, I think, muted a little bit by by COVID. Like people aren't sure what to attribute to that and what to Brexit. And but these, a lot of these think tanks are actually set up as charities. So how is it possible that they can actually have an ideological bent to them? Like I thought, charities were just about helping people. It's a very very good question, and I think there's two elements to to this. One is they can be set up. Um, as charities because the current law basically means that the charity commission is pretty toothless. It can't really do an awful lot. So it has slapped them on a wrist a few times. And um, for example, the Global Warming Policy Foundation, um, it now had to separate out. So it has actually two arms. It has the foundation and it has the Global Warming Policy Forum. Now the forum is allowed to do the lobbying and the foundation in theory does its educational activities. From what we've found from looking quite closely at this organization over the years, that there's very, very blurred lines between those two, but it's allowed it to have this official setup where the foundation's a charity and the forum isn't, so it allows it to carry on these activities. Um, others, such as the Institute of Economic Affairs, which actually isn't based in Tufton Street, but it's based just around the corner and is very much part of this kind of network through shared personnel and revolving double personnel and funders, as well as its ideology, has been, you know, slapped on the wrist by the Charity Commission a couple of times. Um, you know, it, it, it's kind of had, you know, long conversations with them about whether or not it's, it's um, whether or not its uh, activities really are educational. Um, it claims it's, it, it's winning that battle because you know, the Charity Commission had to withdraw um, a, a complaint, it made, uh, a ruling it made against it, but that was actually on a technicality, so that's not as straightforward um, as it seems either. But basically, it, it's muddy. It's because in this country, what counts as a lobbyist, what counts as a campaign group, um, and what counts as a charity is actually pretty hard to define because our, our laws and our regulations don't provide for that. Why is that a bad thing? It's a bad thing because, as you say, it allows charities, um, people who are taking charitable money and then therefore not having to you know, um, pay particular sort of taxes or, or declare particular interests um, in the same way. Um, it's allowing them to basically push an agenda under the auspices of being a charitable organisation. So it's, it's sort of overall it's bad for transparency. And it's also, you would argue, bad because you know charities... Most charities, lots of charities, do fantastic, valuable, socially, you know, um, conscious work. And it kind of undercuts and, and devalues what it means to be a charity. So I think it's not unreasonable to expect a lobby group that, you know, is involved with having meetings with, with politicians regularly um, to push a particular agenda for them to have to declare as a lobby group and not hide behind their charitable status. So 
okay, it's it's all very well and good. Like you can say, yeah, okay, so maybe they have like a certain amount of 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 backing. They they they've got like an ideological bent, but you know, there's a lot of people sort of screaming lots of crazy things into the ether. Like that's that's pretty much Twitter, um, and that does that doesn't mean that they 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 have any like. That doesn't mean that they are in any way powerful. Like people can say anything they want. Like well, mostly. <laughs> Don't dare say there was election fraud. That that will get you banned. Um, but uh, like the what 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 makes you believe that that they have some sort of uh, of power or influence and are not just sort of like throwing their money down a drain of of research and and wonky policy papers that no one really cares about. So you're absolutely right to say that you know these people can say what they they want. That that's not the issue here. Like you know we have no interest in curbing you know freedom of speech and, and the right of organisations to have an ideology. Like that that's fine. You know that's a legitimate thing and in fact healthy in a democracy that you have a, a bunch of groups from different ideologies um, kind of out there saying stuff and, and debating and arguing. The problem is that these have privileged access to a particular set of politicians that, for example, most charities or most people could never dream of. So this isn't just some crazy person on Twitter shouting. These are people who are having, you know, one-on-one -on -one meetings with ministers, one-on-one um, -on -one meetings with ministers that are only sometimes recorded. Dees Morgan and others have, have revealed the fact that, you know, uh, sometimes these get logged as official meetings, but the problem is they then open themselves up to being FOI on the details of those meetings. So increasingly, they're meeting politicians in a personal capacity, as they put it, which means they don't have to keep a record in the same way that the public who elect these politicians um, could then get hold of and, and scrutinise. So they have this privileged access to this particular set of politicians. So that's what gives them power. That's what gives them influence. Um, and because the details of those meetings are largely hidden, hidden it's very hard to know if they are performing, you know, for example, their charitable function of educating or if they're doing very close lobbying. Mm. I mean, like the, the the thing that I think that people don't quite realize is the, the the revolving door between these kind of groups and 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 government essentially. Like for like for example, like Matthew Elliott, who was who was at the forefront of the Brexit campaign, uh, was also the founder of of the Taxpayers Alliance. Who I, I don't know uh, I don't know how on earth they managed to get so many people on on Question Time and on BBC programs, but they're set up. Um, to to appear like a like a grassroots organization, and this is something that that Peter Geegan from um, Open Democracy has um, has written a lot about, and he wrote about in his book actually that's probably behind me somewhere now that we mentioned it earlier, um, uh, Dark Money, um, and essentially like it's 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 trying to create this impression that there is a that like the these opinions that they're putting forward whilst. Uh, would probably be considered fringe they're attempting to like drag them into the mainstream by by pretending like there's like lots of grassroots organizations who who are in support of them like the taxpayers alliance like that sounds like like a group that's totally on the side of you know the ordinary working person and not like probably the, the furthest from the taxpayers alliance as you could possibly get um, <laughs> in that it's, it's a whole bunch of groups who <laughs> Who are funding it like that don't necessarily sit, um, who don't necessarily pay any tax in the UK. So, like, what do we know about the funding of, of a lot of these groups in Tufton Street? And so this is actually really the crux of the matter, is the reason it's a all of this is a problem is we don't know very much about who funds them, right? 
So it's one thing to say that you're, you know, you have an ideology. It's one thing for me to go on to Twitter and have a personal opinion about something. It's a whole other thing if I'm being paid by someone who has a vested interest in that opinion mm. to go and do that. And, you know, take it the next step or be on Twitter if I'm then putting myself at the front of an organization who's being paid by someone with vested interest in stuff we're saying. I then appear on, you know, question time, as you say, or appear on these mainstream media outlets. It's a real problem for democracy then if you don't know where that money is coming from. And most of these groups are fantastically opaque about where their money comes from. Doesn't mean we don't know some of them. We have managed to uncover some of them through you know, a lot of a lot of hard work. Dismog, and you just mentioned it, Peter, Open Democracy and, and others have done some really, really hard work to try and uncover these. But fundamentally, we don't really know. The types of places we do know they get money from, there's a couple. One is kind of major industrial business. So basically businesses that kind of have an interest in, in shutting out other European businesses and kind of creating their own little on our island monopoly for themselves. That's, that's one. Um, so Bamford being a, a kind of a good example of that. Um, another is hedge funds. So hedge funds basically because they can sway politics, they can sway policy decisions using these outlets, they can then bet on the outcomes of that. And so hedge funds kind of have a vested interest and currency managers as well, you know, have a vested interest in kind of trying to tweak the game and trying to, you know, gain an edge. And, and the way they can kind of gain an edge and, and get some sort of insider um, influence on this means that they can basically make money off it. So those are kind of two key two key kind of sources of money we, we know they get. But the fundamental problem is that they aren't transparent. So when that person, you know, when people from the, um, you know, they say people from Civitas or others are meeting ministers and having these conversations, we don't actually know who they're representing. And that is a real problem for democracy. Mm. I mean, like I kind of, I kind of laid out in the, in the book, uh, um, like a, a bit, like there's a, there's a very like quite obvious roadmap is like, okay, say, say you're like, I, I use the example is like, right. Say you want to turn Essex into a car park, right? You've got, you've got to like amass some wealth, like through hard, hard work or, or uh, inheritance, like you can uh, find yourself like a, a think tank or charitable organization. You can call it like, I don't know, the Center for Radical Innovation. Then you got to like make a report on all the social and economic benefits of turning Essex into a car park. And then, you know, throw yourself a nice like charity event, hire some lobbyists and, and maybe even like a, you can hire a relevant like MP or government minister you know, at a, some sort of extravagant salary at a few hours a month in order to, to, to have their ear. And then it just, it just, it bypasses all of the, the usual channels for like making decisions that we would normally expect politicians to rely on, you know, instead of like talking to some constituents and, you know, phoning up some experts or, or listening to some testimony in, in parliament that, that they just sort of go straight to, you know, the, the IEA ball and look at the policy papers that they're producing. Um, and, it, and it has this weird effect of like pulling the, the, the apparent like public conversation like way to the right, like way to the right in, in economic issues, at least anyway. And how, how effective do you think like this is? Is this, would this like shift to the right have happened anyway, perhaps? Or, or do you think that this, like you can, you can legitimately attribute like a lot of these sort of more extreme policy ideas as coming into the mainstream solely because of this, of this network of think tanks? They definitely have an influence for sure. I mean, they wouldn't keep getting funded. They wouldn't keep 
working hard to do what they do if they weren't having some sort of influence on the board. But I think it is important to acknowledge that, you know, a confluence of factors. So firstly, economic crisis happened. So it kind of broke open, you know, British politics to, to allow views that weren't kind of this centrist, kind of mainstream neoliberal um, kind of approach to, to, to suddenly get a voice because people started questioning whether or not that was a was, was a legitimate approach to running to running the country, running the economy. So that kind of broke open the space. And then of course you had the Brexit debate, which again kind of hailed this new era of kind of well, nonsense is one way to put it, <laughs> polarization, misinformation, um, you know, media panic because no one really understood, uh, media desperation to to demonstrate what we would describe as false balance. And being an, an environmental journalist, I'm you know been fantastically familiar with false balance for a very long time. You know, on climate change, you interview a climate scientists and a climate skeptic skeptic well that's not balance that's false balance but there was some sort of desperation among the media hierarchy the mainstream media hierarchy around brexit to try and provide a similar thing on the brexit debate which didn't really represent the full spectrum of views it just ended up being incredibly polarizing um and then you had politicians coming to the fore you know boris hitched his wagon to to brexit and you know there's been plenty better accounts written of whether or not he, he's a, a true brexiter at heart or if this was political opportunity political opportunism but whatever it was he hitched his hitched his horse to that wagon and he's now had to ride it um and so it created this space so that that's basically what happens it created this space this political space for these organizations and then of course then there was kind of once the referendum happened and and, and we got the result to, to leave there was a complete vacuum of expertise <laughs> so no one really had done sophisticated analysis of how we do brexit i don't think that's a secret I don't know. I think blame is across the spectrum there for that fact, really. But nonetheless, there was this huge vacuum. And then where's the, where there's a vacuum, these groups, these kind of tougher groups, that's their absolute dream. Because as you say, they can step in and say, I've got a policy paper for that. I've got a working paper for that. We have some talking points. So don't worry, Priti Patel, Dominic Raab, you can go stand in front of the camera and here are five talking points that we've already got prepared for you. Um, don't, don't even worry about reading the research. Like, here you go. This is just what you say, right? And all of that stuff could have come from an industry-funded research paper. Like you say, someone with deep, and if not industry-funded, then someone with deep pockets who presumably has an interest in writing this stuff. So that's basically what happened. And so through this vacuum, they filled that vacuum and they continue to fill that vacuum. And as you say, there's a huge amount of crossover. So number 10 immediately started hiring when, when Boris became prime minister, immediately started hiring from you know the leave, the, the former vote leave um, infrastructure. You know, a bunch of people went in from there. A bunch of people went into, you know, this trust's office from, from the Bailey infrastructure and from the Tuppen Street infrastructure. So these people having suddenly kind of been on this fringe, mainly providing talking points, mainly being, you know, talking heads on, on media programs, suddenly found themselves putting themselves into these, these offices of power, essentially, and having influence. So events kind of led to their influence, which led to more events, which has led to more influence, if that makes sense. Um, and while politics is cyclical to a certain extent, um, I do think there's a counterfactual where that didn't happen um, and where these groups didn't have their influence and didn't kind of perpetuate the current politics that we're experiencing. Mm. Um, the current is the, the, the former conservative uh, Robert Halfon actually like credited the like Thatcher's success or even her like initial election as, as being because of the think tanks. So the, they're, they're definitely, they, they've definitely had some sort of influence on British politics. I mean, 
I guess like the media are probably as complicit in giving them the platform to say what they want, but uh, yeah, it's difficult to say. Like, what what would you say is like the most obvious or like egregious example of them, uh, like essentially like manufacturing consent, like to steal a phrase from Noam Chomsky, um, manufacturing consent for these policies. Like, what's what's the the their their like what's their greatest success? <laughs> that's that's a, that's a very good question. Um, I think one of the greatest successes was basically them reframing a trade deal with the EU that went along the lines of kind of what we had pre-Brexit as, as a bad thing. Mm. And the reason that they did that, and you mentioned it up top, you know, pushing for these kind of WTO style or, or Canada Plus style deal or whatever it is, it goes back to their core ideology, which is anti-regulation. So the EU brought in a load of regulations some of which are good, some of which aren't, you know, you can, you can have your own opinions on them, but it's basically a bureaucratic body to try to you know, standardize and in, in general improve certain standards. And these groups don't like that. They don't like that. They want the free market to sort it out themselves. And so when Brexit happened, it was a fantastic opportunity to essentially ripple that up. And they were, you know, fairly transparent about this. They produced these policy papers that are basically saying, this is a fantastic opportunity for just to rip up the rule book and start again. And if you rip up a rule book, it's an awful lot quicker to write a shorter rule book <laughs> to replace it than it is to go through and replace it line by line, um, an awful lot easier. And then that basically gives the people we suspect are their funders, um, but certainly the people who, who share their ideology and, and people who tend to fund the types of politicians, so big business, big industrial businesses, people who might suffer from things such as biometric regulations, it creates the space then for them to, to, to redraw the um, redraw the rules and, and kind of have a playing field that very much favours them. Like how how pervasive do you think this like web of kind of influence is able to to like how pervasive do you think it is across like the entire ruling class, especially of or essentially of Britain? Because I mean, like right now, it's 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 very easy to feel like like this like the the, the like basically like free market neoliberalism as as they sort of believe it it's just like that's just the top policy of of both of the two major parties at the minute like here starmer has has managed to leapfrog rishi sunak um and go in in like his drift to the right i'm not sure exactly how that happened um like they've got they've got completely blinded there like like Keir Starmer comes out it's like there will be no raising corporation tax on their labor we wouldn't do that and then Rishi Sunak raised it 25 percent you just sat there being like wow you just got played son (laughs) (laughs) Um, so like like how how pervasive do you think this like web of influences do you think it's like like uh, exclusive to the like one particular faction of the conservative party or do you think it's got sort of tendrils across the whole political spectrum? It's very pervasive. It's very pervasive in the ruling class, for sure, as you put it. I think the the critical thing is that all of this takes money. So kind of sounds like an obvious thing to say, but all of this takes money. So the people it's going to have most influence with are those who are probably already ideologically bent to helping people who have money either keep or make more money. So I think that's where the ideological differences tend to come from. It's not necessarily that these people wouldn't, you know, influence a Labour government, for example. If, as you say, if a Labour government came in with some sort of uh, opening for them to, to have policies that they felt suited their interests, well, I'm, I'm absolutely certain they would they would work 
through those people as well. It's just that at the moment in the current policy we have, there's a particular large, powerful, they're in Downing Street, section of the Conservative Party who are doing all this. So they're very much, they're very much in bed with them. And that does tend to be, that has tended to be the people and the politicians they've tended to be in with all the time because they were always the most likely to deliver on their goals. And there is a certain sleeper element to this as well which I think people sometimes forget. So some of these groups were a little bit of a joke for five or six years before, you know, Brexit started to happen and before, you know, before they even kind of entered onto, onto the, the table as a, as a conversation um, and before Cameron sort of started his lurch towards the right. Um, they were kind of a little bit of a joke, but they remained funded. They were still out there. They kept their profiles up. They kept their kind of research base up. And that's because there was going to be a moment in history where they became useful. And that moment in history was the Brexit referendum, followed by Boris Johnson's government. And all of these people now who spent what isn't necessarily a huge amount of money on, to them on keeping these organisations alive for a decade where maybe they weren't having that much influence, are now seeing that being paid, you know, a hundredfold, you know, having a return on the investment that we could only dream of, right? So I think there was also that element too. And again, that takes money. You do have to question whether the other side of the political spectrum or other sections of the political spectrum have the resources to essentially keep this kind of network alive for a bunch of years where it's not really paying off, whereas this side of the political spectrum clearly did. Yeah, I mean, like, why why on the left just do this? Like, there's, it's, all, it's, it's often like an argument that I see raised. It's like, you know, the right are funding all these think tanks that, that, that they're, like, the accusation is essentially that over the last sort of, 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, you can go the whole way back to the the, the Lewis Powell memorandum. Um, but like they have basically attempted to subsume the supply of, of information, essentially. So they went like straight into universities and tried to recruit like economics graduates, like straight out of uni and like build up their, their just like this web, like think tanks or like nonprofits, news outlets, like research groups. Um, and that they they've essentially like built this up over over 34 years like well why didn't the left do it as well like well where where you know where where were the sleazy left wingers who were creating their their own think tanks so i think the first thing to say is like there is some of that so let's not pretend there aren't you know left-wing think tanks there are um they just tend to be smaller um, they tend to be less well resourced and i think that's the critical thing this system, as I, as I said before, it takes money. So the only people who are going to invest that money are people who can ultimately you know, serve in the, in the long run. So it's unlikely that you're going to find people with a bunch of resources for what we might describe as you know, socially progressive policies or socially responsible policies that are going to stop people who already have money making more money or would require them to lose some of that money or to put it another way, give some of that money back that they probably owe. So, you know, that that's fundamentally why is that you know rich people already rich organizations rich people rich industries already have the resources to plow into this and they're going to plow it into the side of the political spectrum that ultimately suits their suits their aims and you'd argue that often those aims don't don't match with the left there is probably some sort of version of the world where that is true but right now in the current policies we experience they'd argue that's that's not the case so it, it fundamentally comes down to resources um, I think and that that's the main that's the fundamental thing here is that it's not a it's not a fair fight basically so Organizations like Dismog, for example, which do a lot of corporate accountability work, which are to be funded, you know, philanthropically funded. But we're obviously not going to get a ton of money from big corporations. <laughs> like, that's that's fine. That's obviously not what's going to happen because the work we do makes their lives a lot harder. 
um, because it's a democratic and social good. So we get other charitable money, but that's that's ultimately going to put a ceiling on the size of organization we can be, at least in the immediate term, right? So so that's basically, you know, that's just an analogy, but just using a very, something that's obviously very close to my heart. <laughs> that's just an analogy that kind of shows the uneven fight here. You know, whereas if you look at an organization that could potentially help a fossil fuel company make a load of money in the future, that fossil fuel company, which has billions of, you know, dollars of revenue to spend on these things, will probably give them some cash. So, you know, so that's fundamentally why this isn't really a fair fight. One, yeah, one of the other problems that, that Naomi Klein kind of raised in, in This Changes Everything, she was talking about the amount of green groups that are funded by the fossil fuel industry. Then it's like it's like just a, like another, another way, another form of astroturfing where like the groups who are causing the most damage are saying, look, we're funding green projects and they're funding some toothless like campaign group that isn't going to challenge the people that <laughs> that, 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 that they're apparently setting it up to challenge it's like it's like if 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 like the joker was secretly funding batman like <laughs> it just wouldn't work you know it like it, it doesn't work and that like i guess that's the point that you're you're really trying to make is that like we the people do not have the the power finance organization or or money or ideological sort of cohesion cohesion to to have this kind of influence on on government policy on uh, and and on the on the public conversation on how like the 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 sort of mainstream narrative or what's considered like the the the, the general view can be like skewed so much by by the influence of these these groups and like when when people are trying to compete we just just can't so like the, the question then becomes like how how do we stop this i mean yeah exactly it's it, it's it's like say, it's a question of resources and a question of access right so the other thing is you know <laughs> the, this particular government these particular set of government ministers are kind of teflon to scandal so where you know a meeting with a particular person or a meeting with a particular organization who has a vested interest may previously have been something that would have forced at least a conversation about resignation now it's just normal. So these groups, again, you, you know, you, you asked me what the greatest victory was. Actually, maybe I'd change my answer, which is the normalization of this kind of politics, actually. So the fact that you can have these, these meetings, the fact that they can even kind of own up and be honest to a certain extent about these, the fact these things go on. But there's just so much other stuff going on, right? And the fact that it's just happening again and again and again. Like you think about the number of things that have happened in this current government that historically, maybe not the last five years, but probably the last 20 years, would have forced a resignation, which haven't even really caused a ripple. You know, the, the list is really, really long. Um, and they basically created the, the normal, they've done, they've created this normalization of this kind of politics where this is no longer scandalous. When I, you know, as I've been arguing, it really, it really should be scandalous. Um, so yes, you're absolutely, absolutely right. It's that. And to answer your question about, you know, what should be done, we need to tighten up the rules on what makes something a charity and what makes something dealt. You know, not a charity and actually give the regulator some, some power and some, some teeth there to you know really go after and pursue and remove charitable status where where they decide that's not the case so that's that's kind of a simple tweak that could be done um but for whatever reason you know and you can speculate on what that reason is hasn't been done mm. um, and the other thing is tightening up the rules on, on lobbying you know so the uk has fantastically weak transparency laws um you know, so I gave the example earlier of a, there was actually a meeting between Liz Trust and the IEA that got removed from the register 
having originally been on the register because she said, oh, no, that was in a personal capacity. Like, the fact that that can happen is crazy. The fact that she might be having loads of meetings in a personal capacity that we just don't know about as people who elect her and, and as taxpayers um, is just crazy. Um, and, you know, the, the laws around transparency in this country are really bad. The, the freedom of information law, speaking as a journalist, is no longer really fit for purpose. The government has just found ways to make it a complete nonsense. It takes months and months and months to get back a document that is basically entirely redacted. And it takes a huge number of time and resources to then go and challenge that. And you can do it, you can do it successfully, but it puts the onus on the people trying to get the information, which again, in a democracy, shouldn't be the way. You know, we, we elect these people, we, we have a right to know this stuff. That's why the Freedom of Information Act exists. And then also like our lobbying register. So you look at the EU transparency register, for example, there's some very basic information in there that's very, very easy to access. And they have quite tight rules on the reporting and who has to report and how they have to report. And you have these great databases that at least give you the clues as to what is going on. And in this country, we just basically don't. Our lobbying laws are basically a bit of a bit of a joke. So again, tightening up that, all of that stuff would help. And those are kind of laws or rules or regulations that you could, you know, do, the government could do, or, or policymakers could do. And then of course there's the more informal ones. So for example, when an organization is brought on to question time, you know, and they should be required to declare their funding. That doesn't seem unreasonable. It, it seems reasonable that they're going to sit on a program that has huge political influence, that the public have a right to know who they may be talking on behalf of. That doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Um, now, that's kind of hard to legislate for. That has to be something the media organisations themselves sort of decide to do. And I think the BBC in particular has to decide they do. And they did recently tweet their editorial guidance on think tanks because they, they know this is a problem, but they didn't go anywhere near far enough. Far enough. It, it should be a requirement. If you want to be quoted, if you want to appear on mainstream media, particularly on the BBC, then you should be required to declare who your funders are. It's a democratic good. It's a democratic rights, really, to know that. And it's currently something that, that we're failing at. I mean, like, the, the, you kind of mentioned that the, the UK government is kind of scandal-proof at the minute. And that's yeah, they're they're Teflon. I don't I don't understand how Matt Hancock is still in his post. I I I believe that that man will be health secretary for life at this point <laughs> because there's there like there is nothing that he could do worse. I think, and the, or there is apparently nothing he could do that would get him fired. Like, can you imagine? Like sometimes I just like sit back and I'm like, you remember that Piers Morgan interview with with um with Matt Hancock that was, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago. And he just mm. gets shredded, just like completely shredded. Like, can you imagine Tony Blair, like still having him in his cabinet? Can you imagine that? Like, I just, I can't even fathom that that would be a thing. Like, like by the time the interview was over, like Alistair Campbell would have cut off his like government phone. Like he wouldn't, <laughs> just, you know, like, he wouldn't even got a phone call. He would just finish the interview and be like, "Well, that's it. That's my political career done. Thanks, bye." You know, it was it was a good run. You know, ten years in the like, that, that And yet now it's not even like it's not even it's not even like a question. It's like should you die? And he just goes no. Or, or it's like you know, I, the, the 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 secretary will not respond to correct questions about his resignation, uh, or you know, and a, a source from inside Downing Street has said that Matt Hancock is not. Like, why? Did, how did we get here? I mean, th but this is precisely the point, right? And again, this is where the where my answer about normalisation comes in, right? So they've normalised this by just it happening again and again and again. And this is what you saw, frankly, with Trump. So Trump basically looked at the Constitution 
I looked at the US's ability to actually uphold the constitution, you know, legally <laughs> uphold the constitution. I went, all right, let's give it a go, right? Let's let's test these boundaries. Let's push them as far as we can possibly go. And by virtue of just breaking it all the time, you know, breaking, you know, breaking rules all of the time, I don't think that's controversial to say, he very quickly found out that the, the, the capacity for holding people to account was much lower than the capacity to break rules, basically. Um, and I think that's basically what we're finding in this country as well, is like our capacity to hold our leaders to account is far exceeded by their capacity to do wrong. And until we start to level that playing field, until equal resources are put into the side of trying to hold people to account of, you know, uh, organizations that, you know, media organizations that are trying to do corporate accountability work or political organizations that are trying to hold leaders to account, until that level, that playing field is leveled with those who are basically trying to push the boundaries for for profit, basically, then this is what's going to happen. So that that's kind of how we got here. Is it's it's just not a it's not a level not a level playing field, and it just got normalised. And there's only there's only so many articles Desmond can write, you know. Yeah. <laughs> basically, I'm not saying we're the answer to everything, um, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like, there's only so many articles we and others, you know, like us can, can write. There's only so many resources we have, and until that playing field is level, this is this is what's going to continue. Mm. I mean, how much how much um, blame do you? Do you attribute this to like the mainstream press? Because I like I mean, right now it seems like it's more of a crime to walk into a shop with with like no mask on than it is to to hand out like millions and millions of pounds in in mm. government contracts with no bids to your friends or your neighbors. <laughs> like it's like honestly because like I see more scolding of people who's like yeah I saw this person in Tesco's and they had their mask just under their nose and it's like I hope they die I or you know they they deserve to have their whole family catch covid and die like some of the some of the like vitriol I see like based on on just like just the masks is is really disturbing given like the lack of outrage about like just handing away millions and millions of pounds in taxpayer money like do you, like how much how much blame do you attribute the media to that because like obviously that they they're very good at, at like being selectively outraged um especially like our our sort of mainstream tabloid press like uh, yeah how much how much do you attribute that to them like if they were saying we need to be mad do you think we would be so i think the mainstream media bear responsibility for a lot of what happened but in fairness some of the journalists i know they do actually acknowledge that it's there is a conversation within the media which is ongoing about how much responsibility the media currently bears for the current situation. I think that happened in a really big way in the US, and, and so Desmond has a, a US sister side as well. It happened in a really big way in the US around the election of Trump. You know, the media had this, you know, internal debate about what its responsibility was after he got elected to them in the way they treated him. I think a similar conversation is happening, if I'm honest, behind the scenes around Brexit here. And it's not it's not to say the media were inherently um, pro-remain, but I think they understand that there were problems in the way they, they covered the issue. So I, I think there is this conversation going on, but they, they, that's also them acknowledging that they bear responsibility to that, to that issue. But it's also the model of journalism, it's the capitalist model of journalism that we currently have, which is fundamentally broken. So if you're going to tie the value of journalism to the number of clicks an article gets, then you're in real trouble. And this isn't a radical thing to say, you know, this isn't a particularly new thing to say. But if that mod, if that's how this model is going to work, which is how it does now work, because broadly speaking, people expect to be able to consume, you know, journalistic content for free, at least free at the point of access, then it inherently gets tied to advertising. If it's tied to advertising, then it gets tied to clicks. 
never started clicks, then you're going to have really crap journalism because it's particularly during a pandemic is really tiring to read about the climate crisis all the time. You, you do want to read about cats and that's fine. I don't blame the consumer for that. I don't blame the reader for that. That's entirely fine. But what I think there needs to be is a fundamental shift um, in terms of the kind of economic model um, and also the consumer model in understanding what good journalism is. And it's a democratic good. If it's a democratic good, it's possibly actually a charitable good. And if it's a charitable good, then we have to have a really difficult and interesting conversation about how the media is funded. Because the way it's currently funded clearly leads to bad journalism. And bad journalism leads to a broken democracy. Yeah, I mean, so so would you say that this kind of like click-based advertiser model of, of journalism is is unsustainable? Like, do you see it dying in, in the near future? I don't see it dying entirely because there's always going to be a, a, a space in the market for that. But what I hope to see, and I think we are seeing it to a certain extent, is reputable mainstream media organizations that have a long history of doing proud good journalism and that's across the political spectrum you know there have been scoops across the board that have been really really good um realizing that that is sort of worth investing in even if it doesn't make you money the problem is how do you then fill that gap and the way that we're currently doing it so for example with the times <laughs> is this game being bought by a billionaire who has an influence? Who has a vested interest in influencing political outcomes? That's not a good replacement. <laughs> so, what? You know, we have no, to find a way. I know, right? Yeah. Radical. But <laughs> but you know, we've got to find a way where that you're not substituting advertising revenue for billionaires who have vested interest in, in essentially hacking democracy. But we do. We need to find a way to do this. We need to find a way to support to support good. Um, public interest media, basically. And reader donations, they happen, they're great. But again, if I'm entirely honest, I think the wider public don't quite understand quite how expensive doing good journalism is. Because when you're buying a newspaper for a couple of quid, back in the day when you used to buy newspapers, and it was full of you know, some decent material, and I don't want to get too rage tinted about it, there's always been drops as well, let's not pretend. But when you, you're used to only paying two quid for that, you've got to remember that was also on top of all the advertising revenue Right? So that essentially small reader donation of when you bought that newspaper was only a tiny part of the business model even back then. To, to, to write a good article, to do a good investigative piece is fantastically expensive. It's fantastically resource intensive. Um, and so while micro donations from readers are incredibly welcome, and you know, I don't want to sound ungrateful to the people who give to us, it's brilliant. And of course, please, please do keep giving. It, it definitely does make a difference. It's nowhere near enough to, to essentially replace this system or change this system. It's only, it's only helping. Yeah. So then would you like to to make like a final plug or pitch before we finish up here, Matt? Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, I just started it, so I may as well finish it, which is, you know, so DSmog does take reader donations. We, we have a Patreon page. Please go to Patreon slash DSmog UK, DSmog underscore UK, and you can make a, a reader donation if, if you like our work. As I say, it really does make a difference. Um, we're charitably funded as well, which is why we can kind of do our bigger work, but our reader donations certainly do help. Um, and just please visit um, the website, dsmogfoot.co.uk, read our work, share our work. You know, our work is only effective if people know about it. Um, so please do uh, read and, and spread the word. Okay, yeah, brilliant. Check out his, uh, check out Dsmog UK, check out my book, go buy it, everyone. <laughs> it's wonderful, I promise. Um, yeah, thanks very much, Matt. No worries at all, always a pleasure to talk.